Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to talk about the Celtics, who are 17-4 and on the season in just a little bit. No Jalen Brown, no problem against the Hornets on Monday. Of course, this is after Jason Tatum didn't play in the game on Sunday night. It didn't matter. The Celtics just running teams off the floor. We'll chat with Brian Robb from MassLive.com in just a little bit for the latest on the Celtics. But of course, where I want to start today is with the Patriots and three related things with this team. The first one is you have a massive game coming up on Thursday against the Buffalo Bills. And right now, one of the issues heading into this one is the Patriots have a Josh Allen problem. So how are they going to handle Josh Allen in this game on Thursday night? So if you look at that playoff game last year, the game plan did not work. The Patriots pressured Josh Allen on just seven of his 29 dropbacks, and that's 24.1%. Only Brady and Ben Roethlisberger were pressured on less than 24% of their dropbacks last season. And that's where you were in that game against Josh Allen, 24.1%. Against pressure, he ripped you up 5 for 5, 17.4 yards per attempt. Now, Allen under pressure last season, in terms of the numbers, was not particularly great, but he was great against the Patriots. This year, he's actually been good against pressure, an 89.5 rating, which is the third best. Now, here's the other thing that you would look at with Allen. So what the Patriots did is they were trying to be really careful and they were looking at, well, sometimes when Josh Allen holds on to the ball too long, he makes mistakes. So in that game, in the playoff game, Allen had more than two and a half seconds in the pocket on 62.1% of his passes and he tore the Patriots apart. 13 of 15, 86.7%, 238 yards, 15.9 per attempt and a perfect passer rating of 158.3. So that was Bill's gamble. You look at Allen on the season last year, when he had more than two and a half seconds, 
he completed just 54.5% of his passes, and 13 of his 15 interceptions last year came when he had more than two and a half seconds in the pocket. So that was sort of the gamble the Patriots took. Hey, if we make Allen hold on to the ball, he's eventually going to throw it to us. The problem for the Patriots is he never did. Now this year, with more than two and a half seconds in the pocket, eight of his 11 interceptions, and he's completing just 57%. So again, not good in that particular area. Now, a lot of quarterbacks aren't, right? We see max numbers are terrible when it comes to that. But Josh Allen is known more of as is an improviser than, of course, Mac Jones is. Now, the problem is Bill thought that Allen wouldn't be patient. He was. And what transpired is he carved up the Patriots, right? So if you look at that game last year, he had 3.17 seconds in terms of his time to throw. Last year, in terms of the season, the guys that had the most time to throw, Jalen Hurts 3.12 and Jameis 3.02. Jameis holds on to the ball too long. And Hurts, we know, is more of an escape artist and more of a runner as well. So his time to throw last year in that playoff game was higher than anybody in terms of their average over the season. So the whole idea is if you're going up against Allen, you got to get to him at some point during this game, right? You can't just have the same formula that you did a season ago. And if you look at the numbers, Allen against the Blitz has not been great this year. He's 30th of 39 quarterbacks in terms of his completion percentage at just 57%. His passer rating is 32nd out of 39. So you have to show him different looks. Last year, it was too easy. When the Patriots blitzed Allen, he tore them apart. Seven of eight against the Blitz, 87.5%. So the Blitzes were not disguised well enough. The Patriots did not get to Allen when they actually tried to blitz. Evidence of that would be by the pressure numbers I referenced earlier in terms of the pressure numbers in that particular game were not great. So the big thing to me is they have to come up with timely blitzes in this game. They can't go back to the same formula they came up with last year, which was essentially, hey, we're going to make him hold on to the ball in the pocket, and eventually he's going to make a mistake. The problem was that didn't happen. Allen was patient. Allen would get outside the pocket. He would make plays. So there has to be a combination of, okay, let's make sure that we harness Allen, we keep him in the pocket, but... We have to, at times, bring him different looks to basically force them to punt the ball, right? Second and eight, bring a blitz. Get him sacked so they get in bad situations. The Patriots have to come up with strategic blitzes in this game, which they didn't last year against Josh Allen. Okay, so the other thing I would mention is this. In that playoff game, six for 66 in terms of the rushing yards, 11 yards per carry. This is another concern I have in this game, is Josh Allen with his legs, So if you look at the Patriots this year, Fields ran 14 times for 82 yards, 5.9 yards a carry with one touchdown. Lamar ran 11 times for 107 yards, 9.7 yards per carry, one touchdown. If you look at the Patriots this year, their worst two games in success rate against the run came against Lamar and Fields. Against the Ravens, that number was at 54.5%. And the game against the Bears, it was at 55.8%. Those are horrible numbers against the run. Success rate basically just means on first down, you get 40% of the yardage. On second down, 60%. And of course, on third down, you end up picking up a first down. So that's how bad the Patriots were in terms of stopping the run. If you look at the Patriots on the season in terms of their success rate against the run, it's at 39.6%. Green Bay is last in the NFL at 47%. And just to reiterate, against the Ravens, that was at 54.5%. And against the Bears, it's at 55.8%. So those are significantly worse than the worst rush defense in the league. And the common denominator in this is the fact that it's quarterbacks that can make plays with their legs. And Josh Allen is certainly that guy. You're going to see Kyler Murray in a couple weeks that is certainly that guy. So the Patriots have got to come up with a better scheme in terms of getting after Allen a little bit more. 
But secondarily, this is what's so scary about Josh Allen, is if you do get after him and you don't get him down, then he can create plays with his legs. So it's a very difficult matchup for the Patriots. And right now, as I acknowledged at the beginning, there is a Josh Allen problem with this team. There is no way that you can avoid that conversation. And we talk about the offense all the time here, right? But let's see what Steve Belichick, Gerard Mayo, and Bill Belichick do, because Those numbers are against those guys last year where they lit up that defense. And in particular, Josh Allen lit up that defense. And look, this defense has not done what, say, San Francisco has done over the past couple of years, where they've won games because their defense has played well against good teams. I'm not talking about bad teams. I'm talking about good competition. San Francisco, that defense has won that team games. Can the Patriots win you a game because of the defense against a good opponent? We have yet to see that. All right, the second thing I wanted to get to in terms of Patriots-related stuff is they have to embrace the underdog role. They have to use David's strategies in this game. So one thing that stuck out to me, entering this week, the Patriots have gone for it on fourth down eight times. The entire season, only Atlanta and Tennessee have gone for it less on fourth down. They had two conversions on fourth down, the fewest in the NFL. And by the way, that's 25%, which is 31st in the NFL. So they've been really bad on fourth down and they haven't been aggressive on fourth down. Now in 2021, This is a Bill Belichick thing. He's not aggressive on on fourth down. 17 attempts last year, which was 29th. Now, the difference last year is they were actually good when they went for it. 64.7%, which is fifth in the NFL. So Bill does not like to be aggressive on fourth down. But the reality is, in a game like this, you have to get uncomfortable. And by the way, this is not on Patricia in terms of going for it on Thursday night. This is going to be on Belichick because ultimately he makes that decision. You can't play like this is an ordinary game. Because the reality is this, and even somebody wearing Patriots pajamas tonight can acknowledge the fact that the Bills are a significantly more talented team, especially on the offensive side of the ball. So you have to create extra possessions. You have to extend drives. You almost have to do what you did against Peyton Manning back in the day where you went for it on fourth and two because you knew if he gets the ball back, he's going to score anyway. So you have to get a first down there. Now, ultimately, the Patriots didn't get a first down. But that's my point is you have to make sure you get extra possessions. You have to keep Josh Allen off the field. Those fourth quarter numbers in terms of or those fourth down numbers, just in terms of how little they're going for it. It's a massive problem that needs to be addressed in this game. And if it's fourth and one or fourth and two, you can't be punting the ball. You have to make sure it works in just so many different areas where you give your team confidence and secondarily keep that freak show Josh Allen on the bench. We don't want to see him on the field, right? So the other thing I would mention too is you have to keep the defense honest. And if you look at first down this season, the Patriots, their success rate on dropbacks on first down is just 20th. And I understand that You look at that number and you say, hey, you shouldn't be throwing the ball a ton on first down. They need to because you have to make that Buffalo Bills defense respect your passing game, which, quite frankly, last year they didn't really need to do. But, you know, this game plan is going to be for the Bills. Stop the Patriots running game. And if you look at the playoff game, Damian Harris saw eight man boxes, 33.4 percent of the time, which is a really high rate. The good news for the Patriots is this. Ramondre Stevenson is only seeing eight-man boxes 19.2% of the time this year, which is 29th in the NFL. And the reason that's happening is if you look at this offense, obviously you're preparing for Ramondre Stevenson catching the ball to the backfield as well. So hopefully Patricia realizes that defense aren't stacking the box or defenses aren't stacking the box the same amount that they were last year against Damian Harris. Use Ramondre more in the passing game. And then try to get ahead in this game and run the football. And then you're going to be in a much better position. The other component is this. If you look at Mac Jones, five of his seven interceptions have come when the Patriots are trailing. So you have to think, 
Obvious passing situations are not where you want to be as a team. That's why I keep coming back to make second down manageable by throwing the ball on first down so Mac doesn't find himself in trouble. All right, now getting back to the David strategies in this game. This isn't really a strategy. This is just something I feel like it needs to happen. You were really bad on special teams last week. Of course, you're running into the punter. You're giving up a kickoff return for a touchdown. If you look at the Bills on the season, fourth in defending kickoffs, 18.6 yards per return, fewest punt returns in the NFL in general. They don't punt the ball a lot to begin with. But Marcus Jones, ninth in kickoff returns, 25.7 is his average, 15.5 on punt returns. That's third in the NFL. You're the underdog. At some point during this game, you're going to need a big return or two to sort of flip the field and give your team a really good advantage. And the Patriots, to their credit, they've done that a bunch this season. But the problem is they haven't always capitalized when they got there. All right. So those are my two Patriots Bills related things. I did want to get to a rumor that's out there. Jeff Schultz of The Athletic. Bill O'Brien is considering a return to the NFL. Now, Bill Belichick was asked about that this week. He said, I haven't talked to Bill O'Brien in a little while, so I wouldn't know. I really don't want to comment on this situation. I think that's something for him to comment on. Okay, so here's the reality. And I know I'm giving out ideas of what the offense has to do in this game to actually be successful. But the reality is this. The Patriots have been absolutely horrible situationally offensively this year. If you look at the numbers, they're 25th on third down this year, 37.14%. Last year, they were 7th at 44%. We know about the red zone issues, okay? How many times have we harped on this this season, 31st in touchdown percentage in the red zone at 38.71%. Only Denver is worse. And Denver's on pace to be like the worst offense in like the past 50 years. They're that bad offensively. The Patriots, that's the only team they're better than this year in the red zone. Last year, by the way, they were at 63.9%, which is seventh. On first down, if you look at Football Outsiders metrics, they're 29th in the NFL in terms of DVOA. Last year, they were third on first down in terms of DVOA. So look, I'm not going to tell you that I didn't complain about Josh McDaniels at times. I certainly did. And I know a lot of you complained about Josh McDaniels at times last season. How many trick plays was the guy going to run? But the point being is what we've seen this year outlined by those situational numbers. Matt Patricia is incompetent as an offensive coordinator. Bill O'Brien, I'm not telling you he's the best offensive coordinator to ever live or anything along those lines. I'm not confusing him with Kyle Shanahan or something along those lines. But Bill O'Brien is a competent adult as an offensive coordinator, right? And look, there's some issues there. If you go back to 19 with Deshaun Watson with the Texans, they were 23rd, or he was 23rd in passing attempts on first and 10, which, as I was talking about for this game, you have to be aggressive on first down. But one of the things I like in terms of Bill O'Brien is he went to Houston. He was the play caller there for a good chunk of time. And at one point, he gave it off. But then he went to college, of course, with Nick Saban, he embraced the idea of the college ideas into his offense there. And even if you go back to his years in Houston in 2019 with Deshaun Watson, 65 attempts out of RPOs, fourth in the NFL, 517 yards in terms of passing yards out of RPOs, third in the NFL. How many times have we talked about Mac Jones in Alabama? He was so good in terms of his RPO game. 19% of his passing attempts came out of RPOs at Bama. And if you look at it this year, Five total passing attempts out of RPOs. So Bill O'Brien knows exactly what Mac Jones is good at. Remember, if you go back to when Mac Jones was coming out of the draft, Bill O'Brien had just got hired by Alabama and Mac Jones was actually teaching Bill O'Brien the playbook. So Bill O'Brien incorporating some of the stuff that he used at Bama, he can build off that. Like the Patriots, their RPO game that when they actually use it, it's very simplistic. It's nothing like what we see from the Miami Dolphins. 
And Bill O'Brien will be able to expand that type of stuff. And remember, when you just look at this going forward, if you're Bill Belichick, they just got to stop fucking around with the offensive coordinator position, right? Get an adult in the room. What's best for your franchise is to upgrade the position if you can in the offseason. If that opportunity becomes available, that's what you should be doing. If Matt Patricia was playing a position, he would be benched or he would be cut by how bad he has executed in critical situations. How often do we hear Bill Belichick talk about situational football, complimentary football? Patricia has been horrible in terms of his situational play calling. They got to be better there. So if you have this opportunity where you get a guy that thinks like Mac Jones, that he's running the offense, that Mac Jones is running at Alabama. If you have that opportunity, if that guy wants to come to the Patriots and he's available, it would be malpractice not to hire him to replace Matt Patricia. And at least that way you can spin it with Patricia. It's like, well, like Bill O'Brien's available. He knows the system. And Matt Patricia can go back to, okay, maybe he's going to be the Ernie Adams of the future. Or he can be a consultant on the defensive side of things. If this opportunity presents itself, the Patriots need to bring Bill O'Brien here. If he really wants to be here, go get Bill O'Brien. I don't know why Bill O'Brien would want to be here based on, seems like he's got a good gig going on at Alabama, but if he wants to come back to the NFL, like the report says, I'm all in on that. All right, coming up next, the Celtics continue to roll. We'll chat with Brian Rubb from MassLive.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from MassLive.com, Brian Robb. B-Rob, how are you, man? I'm good. Life life is good on the Celtics beat right now. We can have uh, a lot of stories written by by halftime of games at this point. So uh, that's uh, from a from a viewing perspective and from a work perspective, it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> no, you're not kidding. And it's funny because last time we talked was right before the season. The Celtics had recently announced everything going on with Ime. We had just found out about Robert Williams and the surgery. And we were wondering what Joe Mazzula was going to be as a coach. Well, he's got the best offense right now in NBA history. The half-court offense, to me, is the one that sticks out, right? The difference between the Celtics and Dallas, who's second, is the same difference, basically, between Dallas and the Lakers, who are 17th. And it's been incredible to watch this team offensively. That, so far, B-Rob, has been the biggest thing to me. Because if you told me prior to the season, hey, the Celtics will be number one through one statistical category through the first 21 games, I would have said, oh, it's probably still the defense, despite Rob not being there. But what's been the biggest difference to you in terms of how much better this team has been offensively? Yeah, it's like what a whirlwind for uh, the way that like if that our, our first conversation a couple months ago to where they are now. And Joe Mazzulla, to his credit, when he got the job during uh, during training camp, said offense is going to be the priority. He saw, you know, last year we saw this team had a dominant defense. That's what got them to the NBA finals. But that offense kind of went haywire uh, at various points during their playoff run before, you know, pretty much self-combusting in the finals. So. He saw with the pieces that this team had, with the pieces that they added, uh, a guy like in Malcolm Brockton, who is, is a starter in the NBA and was a you know one-time all-star at his peak, um, or at his potential, I should say, to, to, to put all those pieces together right now and say, hey, listen, let's play up-tempo and let's just move the ball. And we're going to have shooting everywhere. And the guys that can't shoot, the, the Luke Cornets of the world, are going to be just trying to get everyone open. And for... 
that mix to come together this quickly, Brian, I think is a tribute to like the system they have in and also how things ended last year. I think everyone, the buy-in on this team from top to bottom is is fully there. And when you bring those two things together right now, that's when you have, you know, a historic pace that they're on. Yeah, I want to circle back to Brogdon in a little bit because obviously Brad deserves a ton of credit for that. But if you just look at every conversation with this team starts with Tatum. And the thing that sticks out to me is he just looks more physically dominant this year than he did last year. Not to take anything away from him. He's 24 or 23 years old last year, technically. And you look at the numbers this year off the board, 76.1% in the restricted area. That's better than Giannis. That's better than Zion. He had some ridiculous finishes last night. The free throw attempts are way up from where they were a season ago. And we heard this was like an emphasis with him and Drew Hanlon in the offseason was actually finishing through contact because we saw at times last year he couldn't do that. And then he's complaining to the officials. But B-Rob, it seems like he's finally come into basically he's at the peak of his powers right now. I didn't know if there was a huge leap coming this year, but it's already happened and we're 21 games into the season. Yeah, it's kind of nuts when you're like, yeah, he made all NBA first team last year. But guess what? He's he's really like taking it to a different level here. And as you mentioned, like the free throws, the fin- I think he's getting just like he got a lot smarter, I think, in terms of like the shots he's getting around the rim right now. Like he's not making things as hard on themselves, like playing not just playing through contact, but playing around contact. And so he gets better angles to get these shots up. But I feel like the other things, too, he's just finding a lot of easier shots within the flow of the offense. I think that's the to me, that's the biggest thing, because you look at he's shooting 35 percent from three here. So it's not like he's shooting the lights out from beyond the arc it's more of he's shooting 59 percent from two and so it's like less mid-range a lot more than cuts uh back cuts you know give and goes type those type of plays that just get him his points without having to work so hard in these isolation situations so he still can do that when he wants to they still need him, are going to need him to do that at points obviously late in games but when the when the points come a lot easier and uh, from that obviously is a tribute to his teammates too, like making shots around him, like it's harder to throw double teams at him. Now that's where you get a guy who's, you know, averaging 30 per game and is very much in the mix for MVP right now. Yeah. The double team is a great point because there was a play last night, that game against Charlotte where they're, I mean, they're trying to find anything to slow down that Celtics offense, the way that it started where they had 45 points in the first quarter. They blitz Tatum with like two guys that aren't even as big as him. And he just throws it to Derek White. Derek White takes one step and throws an easy alley-oop to Blake Griffin. I mean, it yeah. was like the easiest thing. And that's something, it seems like a simple play, but that's a play that the Celtics had trouble with last year when teams would double Tatum. And he's been phenomenal with that. I expect the three-point numbers to your point to come up. Like, I remember last year from March to the end of the season, he shot like 43% on pull-up three. So hopefully that turns around at some point. But like you said, I mean, he's he's scoring at the rim, so it doesn't really matter because he's been so good from two. But the other thing about Tatum that sticks out to me, and obviously part of this is there's no Robert Williams, and I don't want to take away from anything that Marcus Smart does or that Derek White does, but I would argue so far this season through 21 games, like he's been their best defender. There was a game earlier this year where they used him in the Rob role. Like he was roaming around just blocking shots. Yeah, I think it's a great point by you that the fact that he is <clears throat> that free safety role, like they haven't had to use him in that too much. Like they use him selectively in spots, particularly with that like second unit group uh, last year. But I think this year he's kind of embracing that more and will, you know, be that help defender that they need uh, getting into passing lanes. And then we'll just take on the challenge certain nights of like slowing down guys when they need them to, whether it's a guy like uh, a DeRozan type or anyone else, you know, Mitchell at the end of, you know, a couple of those games they lost earlier in the year, he was 
you know, had incredible stops at the end of that game that they lost in overtime back in Cleveland there with the block on him from three. So when you're getting it on that end of the floor from Tatum right now, um, and that might be, again, a, a tribute to the fact that offensively things are coming easier for him. So he has a little bit more left in the tank on the defensive end right now. So that's a that's a big boon for this team. And given the fact that they're still only just, you know, middle of the road defensively right now, and that's clearly an area that they can still do plenty of growth is as uh, they get healthier here. Yeah, and I remember that Mitchell game, too, where it's like, okay, the Celtics lose, but Tatum gets the block at the end of regulation. It was awesome. He did the same thing against Memphis. Like, he switched over to John yeah. Morant a couple of times, and that's one of the fastest players in the league. I mean, it's probably between him and, like, De'Aaron Fox. I mean, that was incredible to see as well. So I want to ask you about Smart. So he's up to seven and a half assists per game after, of course, he set his career high last night with 15. I thought he may go for 20 the way that that game started last night, but he's finding the right guys, right? 105 assist points to Tatum. 100 to Jalen. We knew he was a good passer throughout his career, but it does really seem like ever since they realized like, hey, the point guard we've been looking for this whole time, he's actually on the roster. Like I didn't realize he was this level of passer. I mean, some of the passes he's throwing last night, he's almost like toying with the defense at times. It really is. When he gets in a groove on that front, it's, uh, you know, it you, he pulls a lot of things out of his bag that you didn't know were there in terms of the passing. And that was, you know, I, I talked to him a lot about this last season when, you know, years upon years, they would, you know, they brought in Kyrie, they brought in Kemba, they, you know, Isaiah Thomas even before that. And so he never was, you know, got that, you know, full season start where it's like, you're the point guard, you were giving you the keys. And it took him a while last year to run with it, but he eventually that team found their, their way, you know, in the second half of the season there. And to be honest, the first four or five games this year, Brian, he was brutal. Like yeah. he had some he real rough shooting performances you know the passing was there but the, the, he was making some i think ill-advised turnovers and stuff and so for now ever since that and i actually wrote a column after that cleveland game where he took a you know kind of a that ill-advised shot at the end of regulation there that helped cost him the game i was like all right they need he needs to kind of just take a step back here and you know become the better facilitator and since then i think he's played the best basketball of his career like this this stretch for him the these three or four weeks between the passing, the shooting has come all the way back up to where he's back at his season averages after just, after just a miserable start. And so that's the one thing right now. Like you look at the Celtics offense in the past, and it's like, okay, what's the weak point? Uh, you know, when Smart kind of gets, you know, tries to do too much offensively and take shots, maybe he shouldn't be taking. Now he's just, you know, not only setting up his teammates, but he's hitting the open shots for himself. And that means defenses like there's nowhere to hide in any night with against this team on the floor. Well, I do wonder, too, like the sports radio topic for so many years is, hey, should they trade Marcus Smart? And I do feel like there was actually some like rationale behind that, right? Because it did feel like at times that he would hijack the offense. But I do really wonder if just like embracing this point guard role and actually been given this point guard role and to be the facilitator of the offense has really helped him like where now he knows exactly what his role is on offense. And I feel like for so many years, he didn't really have a distinct role, right? He was doing different things. And like he he still he takes a bunch of shots. You're like, don't do that. And then it goes in. But I do feel like maybe there is some sort of like comfortability with the fact that he knows exactly what his role is now. Yeah, I think you know on that because you just look at the talent they put around him now. Like a lot of these years, the Celtics just didn't have enough in their supporting cast beyond Brown and Tatum. So and with no one else willing to take a shot, Smart says, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll step up here. I'll like, you know, try to get to the rim or take that three at a spot where they're doubling. But now this year, it's like, listen, they're shooting everywhere in the floor. And so if the shot is there for smart, great. But he also can see like, listen, I have three, four viable 
dead eye shooters on the floor for me at all times right now. So if I can just keep the ball moving, like I'm going to look good. They're going to look good. We're going to win games. And that's, you know, they what you want about smart, but he's always been about that first and foremost. Yeah. And hey, so I've always been like a big Derek White fan, like even last year, like at times in the playoffs, he was scared to shoot. And like that was obviously a problem for this team. I've always said, like, I think he's the best screen navigator I've ever seen. Like the guy just finds a way to get skinny and gets around screen. So he's an outstanding defender. But if you look at the numbers this year, the catch and shoot threes, 31 of 67, which is 46.3%. Last year with the Celtics, that number was at 30.8%. And as we mentioned, as I mentioned in the playoffs, it felt like he sort of lost confidence. So he's obviously not going to stay at 46% for the season, but these threes are wide open. It seems like he's shooting them a lot more confidently this year. Can he at least be an average to above average catch and shoot player for the remainder of the season? I see no reason why not. I mean, this is something he worked on all off season. You have the benefit of the full training camp this year. So the comfort level with him, with his teammates in this offense is very much there now. And the the looks are just going to be wide open time after time there that's not going away no matter how you <laughs> yeah. defend this like no matter how you defend this team like who you leave open brown Tatum, like al horford who's shooting like an insane like no you're probably gonna white's probably the one guy you're like okay yeah we'll take our chances with white and yeah like you said if if he can just hit 38 39 of those threes that's a a tremendous number for this team so i don't see any reason why he, that level can't, can't be sustained here over an 82 game stretch yeah. The one issue I've had with him this year is like last night, the guy has a wide open layup and he like kicks it out. I'm like, all right, like pro yeah, probably the, the crowd was not happy about that, by the way. At the guard, they're like, you're like, ooh, <laughs> like, they just want him to, like they, they don't whether it's him or Luke Cornette, when the guys turn down open shots or like they're really trying to make sure, you know, like, no, you should you should take that one. Yeah. Keep the confidence up, by the way, speaking of Cornette. So the defensive rating with him on the floor is a 108.52. I get it. It's only 217 minutes, but that would be top five in the NBA. We've heard about the Cornette contest. Scal talks about it all the time. We all know what it is by now. The guy just jumps like he's in the middle of the paint. He jumps up when a guy takes a three, but it seems to be somewhat effective. So look, when Rob comes back, some of those minutes go away. But it does feel like the Celtics got this right because there was a lot of talk in the offseason. Do they need to trade for a big? Why is Luke Cornette still on the team? But it does feel like they found like a relatively effective player to be like the eighth, ninth, tenth guy on your team. It is. As a guy that was, you know, spent pretty much all last year in the G League. And internally they were very high on him um, in terms of his his reliability on the defensive front there. And so you know, they brought in a, a mishmash of guys during training camp, but no, no big names, obviously. Everyone's, you know, none of the Dwight Howards or DeMarcus Cousins or whatever. Like, no, we'll we'll look at this group and see who emerges. And it's pretty clear cut that Cornette had a sprained ankle out of the gate. That kind of put him behind for the first couple of weeks of, of the season. But then he's just kind of run away with the, the backup center job. And the big thing to me, Brian, that kind of sticks out with him in this offense is if you look at Cornette earlier in his career, he was kind of used as like a stretch four. I mean, a stretch five, I should say, whether it was mm -hmm. the, the Bulls or the Knicks and the Celtics with this team have said, hey, you know what? We just want you to be like a lesser version of Rob Williams. Like, just go finish, like set good screens, go like catch some lobs at the rim. He's a pretty good passer for a big. So they're kind of they will run some stuff through there, too. And that's, you know, he's obviously nowhere close to where Rob Williams is, but getting even 80 percent of Rob Williams is giving you as a backup center in this offense is is going a long way at this point given the talent he has around him so 
he's playing that role to a T. Um, and, and I don't know, it's like, it's fascinating to me now because you look at before the year, you're like, okay, they'll eventually address the the backup center position for more insurance now. But now I wonder, it's like, is he playing well enough where it's like, oh, like, is that someone, even if our Rob goes down, like we feel pretty comfortable long-term, you know, or at least, you know, performing the season with, with Cornette there, I, he's making a case for it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wouldn't give anything up for a big at this particular point, unless you have an injury. I mean, knock on wood to like Al or something during the season. But other than that, I mean, there's not a reason to do it in my mind. And if you asked me before the season, I said they're definitely going to make a move for a big at some point. But you're right about the passing, too. I've been impressed with some of the passes he makes after he sets screens and whatnot, finds the guy in the corner. So we talked about Tatum and sort of how he's been much better on twos. And for him, it's like getting to the restricted area. And then I look at Jalen. And Jalen this season, the three-point numbers are down as well. But the one that sticks out to me is 55.9% on 59 mid-rangers. That's the best of anyone that's taken at least 50. And then the pull-up twos naturally are going to be good too. He's 35 of 64, so that's 54.7%. And the reason this is so huge for me is just the fact that this is a shot that sometimes in the postseason, the pretty stuff's going to go away. And you're not going to be getting all these easy opportunities in terms of the catch and shoot threes. And you need your best players, Tatum and Jalen, to take over. And Jalen can get to that shot at any point, right? Because he's quick enough to get to the spot. He can decelerate and then he can get up and you're not going to block his shot from that area. So to me, this is a big development for when the Celtics get ready for the postseason that Jalen can get to that shot and he's hitting it very efficiently this year. Yeah, there's no question about that. And that's, Something throughout Jalen's career, even at the very beginning, you know, that you see guys that offensively take a step back in the postseason for that reason you mentioned, like for because the shot quality goes away. But when Jalen, he's always just been a tough shot maker, and especially in that range, because that's the area where you're going to get shots. So that's something through jump stream and a credit to Ainge and Stevens to kind of hold on to Jalen through all the years of rumors and whatnot, and you know, temptation to trade him for uh, stars is saying like, okay, no, this is a guy that with the development here, like we think is going to be a bonafide number one, number two option in the postseason. And that's held up here when the numbers this year now, as they continue, like to like some of the turnarounds and stuff he takes, Brian, from that range, or you're like, yeah. like you said, it's impossible to defend. He gets these shots off with, you know, three, four seconds left on the clock and, and drills them seemingly effortlessly. So that the fact that that's, at such a high efficiency level, along with the fact that he's just a runaway train and transition right now. And the fact that they're running more and more in the offense period means those are easier looks for him. It's um, it's a very, it's a very, very daunting situation for all defenses to deal with at this point. Yeah. And I just look back like outside of Curry, the dominant players of like the last decade or so. I think of Durant and Kawhi as two of them. And those guys, when they got to the postseason, they dominated in that area of the court. When things got difficult, they could always get their own shot. And we're seeing that with Jalen. The transition thing's a good point, too, because one of the things I've noticed that's different from last year is, like, the hit-ahead passes are way better this year than they were a year ago. And I would give Grant Williams some credit, too, because Grant is now just dribbling up. Like, Grant will get a rebound and he'll dribble yep. up. So the transition game has been significantly better this year than it was a year ago. So how about Sam Hauser? It feels like every shot this guy takes is going in. I mean, the catch and shoot numbers are through the roof. They're over 50%. And we know that the offensive rating is through the roof when he's on the court. And it feels like sometimes teams go at him defensively. I feel like, you know, he's big enough where he's 6'7". He's held up now in the postseason. Of course, teams will try to target him more, but it almost feels like this is a luxury, right? Where, okay, you don't have to play him every game, like in a postseason series, potentially, if there's a disadvantage defensively. But 
Like, it would have been nice to have this type of guy last year when the spacing really broke down. He was on the roster. He didn't get much playing time, (laughs) right? I mean, like, they didn't use him. He may didn't use him in the postseason, but it does feel like this is almost like a luxury item the Celtics have. It is, and it's it makes you wonder. I mean, you know, and obviously Aaron Neesmith was kind of in line and got some of those minutes uh, through parts of last year um, before he may just went to a tighter rotation in the playoffs. And but yeah, you wonder if if they just rolled Hauser out there, and who knows what he would have looked like last year if another you know summer of season under belt he might have gotten a little more ready for the uh, the occasion here. But that certainly could have helped in those post seasons. But now it is just for him to. I think it was maybe the win against the um the wizards on sunday night at the end of a quarter he just got the ball in transition with like seven seconds left and without hesitation took the three nailed it and that was like some people you're like ah like you gotta hold for the last shot there but it's like no he's already risen a level where he he knows that's a good shot everyone's happy he's taking that shot and for him to get to that point just really 20 games into his you know legitimate playing career of the celtics here it speaks volumes and then beyond the shooting People compare him a lot to Duncan Robinson. He's a, he's a much better defender than Duncan Robinson is right now. Like he he's not Way being better. a target like a, like a guy like that was exactly. And so if when you factor that in with the fact that he doesn't get out of his lane offensively, his turnover rate is like minuscule. So not only is like okay, he's going to take good shots, he's not going to turn the ball over. That's pretty much the perfect role player for a team that has you know Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and. Malcolm Brogdon setting the table, essentially. How about the and one on a two the other night? I'm like, what the <laughs> heck? <laughs> it's like, look out. <laughs> I didn't expect that to happen. How many two more two point shots have he taken this year? Like maybe like 10? <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, it's ridiculous the amount of three-pointers he takes. But I mean, I mean, I wouldn't advocate him for it to go inside much more. So Brogdon, we mentioned him briefly earlier, but if you look at the Celtics on the season, the field goal percentage on drives is third in the NBA. They're seventh in points on drives. And I attribute a lot of that to Brogdon. He's got the most drives per game on the team. So that element they didn't really have last year in the postseason. You would have loved it against the Warriors when it was just Jalen and Tatum trying to do everything to have that. But the other component to me that's interesting about the dynamic, B-Rob, is he brings that drive game. But also, like, all these games where you have guys out, it's Derek White and Grant Williams in the starting lineup, right? It feels like... Joe Mazzulla's idea is always to keep Brogdon on the bench, which I kind of like because that kind of streamlines the second unit, right, where Brogdon can run things. So it almost seems like he always wants to have Tatum, Brown, or Brogdon on the floor at the same time. Is that sort of the vibe you get? 100%. And I, I think it's a really smart strategy because not that Brogdon's wasted when he's playing with Tatum and Brown, but like his ball, the ball is not going to be in his hands as much with those guys on the floor. And the fact that he can... As you're, uh, to your point on the drives, is pre- he's pretty much getting wherever he wants on the floor, particularly against second units. Like, if you put a elite defender on him, yeah, you might be able to slow him down, but, you know, most second team just don't have that to throw on him. So, yeah, you 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 say, okay, we're going to slow him down, and he's 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 noticed that, you know, teams are kind of scouting him to, you know, try to take away the drive from the game. So what he's been trying to do is set up shooters around him, hmm. whether it's, you know, whether it's White, whether it's, Grant Williams, Hauser, obviously. Um, and the fact that the second unit has been so potent there, that's opening up the floor for him, you know, later as these games go along to attack more and more because defenders have to stick to those shooters. And that makes, you know, again, creates conundrum for for all these defenses that don't have the second units to keep up here. All right. So you mentioned the defensive numbers sort of middle of the road right now, but they are going to get Robert Williams back at some point, which in my opinion, even though Marcus Smart won defensive player of the year, he was their best defensive player last year. We saw 
what a difference it was like just getting him healthy by the time the Warriors series started because he wasn't healthy in those other series when he tried to play and they'd have to give him nights off. But how are you feeling about that? Because he's going to come back at some point. Do you think we see the guy that we saw prior to the injury last year at any point this year? It's tough. It's tough without, you know, knowing, getting a good look at him. And it, I think the great news for them now here is so it's like, okay, is he ready? Say he's ready by Christmas. I'd say, all right, give him another like three or four weeks then. <laughs> because, yeah. Because it's like, at this point, you're, you almost you just want to, sh- to save the wear and tear on his body, which we know as a, a habit of, you know, breaking down at various points over the long grind. So it'll be, it'll help here. They'll, you know, have 30, 40 games in the book by the time he comes back. And then I'd be shocked if he, they probably will have a set minute limb for him. I think early in these, you know, games as he's just kind of building back up his fitness. I'd be shocked if he's playing any back-to-backs all year long, like Al Horford, they'll probably alternate that. And yeah, but that is the biggest question. It's like, okay, he's going to be back, but what does that look like? Does that look like a guy that, we thought at points during last year's postseason, like he shouldn't be playing. He can barely get up the floor. But then the next game, he would, you know, bust out some really important plays around the rim. And so clearly all they'll be working towards is making sure he's the best version of himself in April, May and June. And however, the training and medical staff figure out the best way to do that is 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 what is worth keeping an eye on here. All right. And then the other thing is, if you just look at it, we mentioned that right now it doesn't feel like you need a big, depending on the health of these guys. It feels like, I mean, they almost have too many guards with Smart, <laughs> with Derek White and Brogdon. Like Pritchard's getting a bunch of DNPs or unless it's garbage time earlier this season, we've seen him getting more run lately. I mean, what would you could always get better? Like they're 21 and four. But like is there's really not really to me a pressing need. Like when we get closer to the trading deadline, it almost would feel like maybe take a guard away rather than anything else. Like, I don't see a pressing need with this team right now. No. I mean, when you're at, you, what have they won now? Like 13 to 14, 14 to 15, you're getting Rob Williams back. I think the one thing you could conceivably upgrade is the very, very back end of the roster of like, you know, Noah Vonley, Justin Jackson, like not, not a knock on those guys, but you know, they yeah. you could maybe get a, a big rebounding alternative to Vonley that can give you something more down there. Um, but again, what is, if you're healthy, that, that doesn't necessarily become a priority. It's certainly not going to be a guy you expect to even, you know, sniff minutes in the playoffs. So to me, this is all going to come down to where, you know, how healthy are they in when the next month or in January, like when does a need emerge based on someone getting hurt? Um, or do they, someone fall back down to earth offensively and they could use, you know, grade there. Uh, the offense is masking pretty much any deficiency this team is having right now. So eventually that's going to come back down to earth a little bit. But if you're not going to look at a big, I would potentially look at finding some extra like wing depth with size, you know, not that Hauser's going to play, but like maybe try to find a, you know, above average defender at that position in the event that, you know, Jalen and or Tatum have to miss any kind of length of time there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Hey, and before I let you go, B-Rub, so the other day I was talking about the fact that I think that this team is deeper than the 08 team. The 08 team ended up winning 66 games during the regular season. Does this group get to 67? (laughs) Ah, I'm going to say no, because I think that they're just going to, there's going to be enough resting of guys as the year goes on. I think that was pre- load management that 0708 team and that team was Good just on, that team was just on a mission all year long whether it was you know you couldn't get kg to sit in you know back-to-back nights or whatever so that's i feel like 
if they were healthy all year long, I'd give them a chance to that number. But the fact is, I, I think we're going to see some strategic rest as this year goes along. And although the Bucks are going to be right there with them for that number one seed in the in the East, I feel like. So it's not like they're going to be able to take their foot off the gas too, too much. But at this point, I, I pegged them in the low 60s for wins. I don't think they're going to get to the, to the 67 mark. Yeah, and now I'm like retroactively pissed at Doc again. Like, dude, give KG <laughs> some games off in 08 because then in 09, he wouldn't have had the injuries. Yeah. That, I'm not blaming all Doc, but you get my point. It's like that 09 team was better than the 08 team. I mean, the way they started the season and this is after they had already won a championship. They had their difficulties in the postseason against Cleveland and Atlanta. I just feel like that would have been a better team than the 08 team. They uh, didn't they take they took the Magic to seven games. I mean, they would have won the yeah, championship oh yeah. that year. I mean, they, they're they, up 3-2 in that series. Oh, man. KG 09. That guy was incredible. All right, that's Brian Rob from masslive.com. I didn't want to end on a sour note, but no, I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> But when I'm reminded of KG in 09, it just it it hurts me. All right, B Rob, appreciate the time, man. Great stuff. All right, thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Brian Robb from MassLive.com. Great conversation on the Celtics. It's crazy talking about the Celtics compared to the Patriots. Just this team is a juggernaut. Unbelievable to watch this team play right now. All right, we got time for a couple of calls. The number is 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hey, Brian, Joe from West Virginia. Always enjoy your podcast. It's like going to the supermarket to buy fresh items. You, you, have a, you always have a fresh approach and it's enjoyable to listen to. Um, a quick uh, commentary on the Seas and then a question about the Pats. With the Seas, they have a devastating duo in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I mean, through the not even half the you know the games, both um, Tatum and Brown are averaging over 25 points. I mean, I go way back with the Seas, and I don't think I don't know ever recall such a devastating duo as far as point scoring. So. As he goes along, and they're only going to get better. 
It could turn into like a pick your poison type kit, you know, and they're going to be tough to stop. The Pats, years back when they, of course, had the dynasty with Tom Brady and Wild Bill Belichick, they seemed to get better as the season went along. I don't know if I can say the same for these current Pats. So the question I have for you, with six games left and playoffs possibility looming for the Pats, are they going to be able to be over 500, at 500, or under 500 in these next six games? Brian, stay safe and healthy through the holidays, and we'll keep on listening. Bye. All right, Joe, great stuff. I appreciate the kind words as well. So first, I'll address the Celtics point in terms of the duo. They are the best duo in the NBA right now. And I know Giannis doesn't have his wingman right now in Middleton, who's been dealing with injuries, but this is the best duo in the NBA. I mean, these guys put so much pressure on you defensively, and it's the best combination to have, right? I know I've done the comparison before where it reminds me of the Heat with Dwayne Wade and LeBron James. We haven't really seen two wings like this on the same team for a long time. I mean, Paul George and Choir are like never on the court together. So this is like the new, I'm not saying they're going to have the careers, but they're the new LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, of course, in terms of just, hey, most nights you're going to have the two best athletes on the court. That's what the Heat always had with those two guys. And that's what the Celtics have right now. Those are the best two athletes on the court on a nightly basis. As it pertains to the Patriots, it's a great point. That used to be the thing with the Patriots is, hey, after Thanksgiving, They turn into the best team in the NFL. How many times did we hear that cliche through the years? And it wasn't a cliche. It was true. But look at it recently. Last year, you go to post bye week. They completely fell apart. Even Brady's final year here, they fell apart in the latter portion of the season as well. And remember, they lost in that playoff game to Tennessee. I'm optimistic that they at least found some things offensively. Now, I'm not super optimistic against the Buffalo Bills just because they're the juggernaut of the NFL. But I'm not worried about the Cardinals. The Raiders have all sorts of issues right now. But I am optimistic that at least they'll find something that works down the stretch of the season with Mac. I I do give them credit. They were better offensively against Minnesota. All right, who's up next? Brian, Dan, and Jamaica Plane Colin just uh, can't help but wonder that this Patriots offense would look much better with a more seasoned quarterback at the helm. Chances of Tom Brady ending his career in New England next year. There's a couple of tight ends, sufficient wide receivers. Could pick up a offensive lineman or two, but I think this is ready to go for one last swan song. Oh, I like it, Dan. I like it. It's very juicy. Now, a couple of components here. Obviously, we would have thought it would be Miami because of everything that transpired in the offseason with the tampering, et cetera. But Tua has been one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, so it's not like they're going to be looking for an upgrade. The team that I would look at is San Francisco, right? Because we know that Brady wanted to go there a couple of years ago. And John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan watched all his film and they decided that Jimmy was better than Tom for them going into the 2020 season. Now, the issue there is Trey Lance is dealing with an injury. Who knows if he ever develops into anything. But if the Niners fall short again in the postseason, they don't get over the hump. And the main reason you would point to is the quarterback, right? Because their defense is one of the best in the NFL. They have all these weapons when you're talking about Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle. So that, to me, would be the team where Brady would go. With this team, you don't really have enough receivers for it to be intriguing for Brady. Think about the team he went to. They already had Godwin. They already had Mike Evans. And Brady was already recruiting Rob Gronkowski to come with him there. So I think if Brady is going to move on next year from Tampa, which I think he will, I think San Francisco would be a much better landing spot for him. Now, selfishly, I would want him here because obviously he's better than Mac Jones, but I don't think he would come back here. All right, so... By the way, great calls as always. If you want to leave us a voicemail, that number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, I did want to get to one Red Sox-related note. Jose Abreu is not going to be a member of this organization. He signs with the Astros three years for $58.5 million. 
John Heyman today on Twitter tweets, Jose Abreu was Boston's number one outside target. The Red Sox met with him as soon as free agency opened. So I made it abundantly clear I wanted him. I told you guys at the beginning of free agency, this is one of the guys that I wanted to target along with Brandon Nimmo. And the reason is he can play first when you give Tristan Cassis a day off against, say, a good left-handed pitcher. And secondarily, for the large portion of the season, he can be your DH. And this is clearly a need for the Red Sox right now. They needed a DH, and they needed somebody that could spell Cassis at times. And I know Eric Hosmer is a reverse splits guy, but no power against lefties, right? I mean, just two home runs, slugged 414 with a 773 OPS. Meanwhile, Abreu, 294 last year he hit against lefties, obviously really good. 858 OPS, which is good, and he slugged 471. So significantly better in terms of the power numbers than Eric Hosmer was, even though Hosmer hits for average against lefties. And the other thing is, do you want Hosmer in the lineup every day as your DH? No, he's not really a power threat at this point in his career. In fact, before he came over from the deadline last year, he had the highest ground ball rate in all of Major League Baseball, and Abreu is a power threat. And now he goes to the best team in baseball. So a couple of things here. One of the things that I've seen from people is, They didn't want to bray you at that price. Well, I'm sorry. This is how free agency works. You have to overpay for guys when they hit the open market. The best team thought that this guy was good enough to pay him over $58 million in his 36-year-old season and sign him through a 39-year-old season. That's the best team in baseball right now. They just won the World Series. And they're saying, yeah, he's worth it at this price. Unfortunately, when you get into free agency, you're not going to win the deal when you're the team. The player wins the deal. You have to get uncomfortable at times, and it's a bad look that if this was your number one target, you didn't land him. Okay, now the other thing I would mention is this. Remember what happened with the DH position when Ortiz retired prior to J.D. Martinez getting signed in 18 by Dave Dombrowski. There was a hole in the lineup. That season, pre-J.D., after Ortiz, you moved to 27th in home runs. You slugged 407, which was 26th in Major League Baseball. So this has clearly been an important position for the Red Sox organization. And even Heim Bloom recognized it by going after Abreu and you don't land him. And I do sort of wonder this. And remember, that year was weird. Mookie Betts was hitting fourth in the lineup at times. It's like, what the fuck is this? This dude's a leadoff hitter. Why is he hitting fourth? But anyway, getting back to my original point, I just worry about where are free agents with this Red Sox team right now, right? And the reason I say that is, Last year, you signed Story because you offered him more money than the Texas Rangers. That's where he wanted to be. They ended up signing Simeon. He didn't want to be here. Originally, he wanted to go to Texas. He's from Texas. He ends up with the Red Sox because you offered more money. And maybe Texas didn't like the medicals like the Red Sox. You know, he's dealing with the elbow issue and all that different type of stuff. But the point being is Story was here because Texas didn't offer him what he wanted. And they had signed Simeon. But what's the pitch for Abreu? Bogarts is just looming. He's just out there. Like, we don't know if he's going to be a member of this organization going forward. Rafael Devers isn't signed long term. This is going to be his last contract, really, in Major League Baseball. Now, maybe he gets another one, but his last big contract in terms of the three for 58. What's the pitch? Well, the Astros pitch is, hey, we're the best team in the sport. With the Red Sox in the Bloom era, are they really that appealing? Dombrowski would just go after top guys and he would land them. He would always have a loaded roster, Dave Dombrowski. They knew what the mission was, free agents. Hey, we're going there. We're going to play for a winner. We're going to play for one of the best markets in all of Major League Baseball. Selfishly, I think it's the best market. But nonetheless, you get the point. I mean, it's up there. If you want to debate, it's Chicago. It's New York, St. Louis, San Francisco, et cetera. But the point being is the Red Sox are one of the best markets in Major League Baseball. 
And it was an easy sell for Dave Dombrowski. And Dave Dombrowski always made big moves. He always got his guy. He traded for sale. He traded for Kimbrell. He signed J.D. Martinez. He always got his guy. That was the Red Sox. That was who the Red Sox were really for 20 years or so. They were a dominant team that always landed free agents. What are the Red Sox now under Heim Bloom and the front office going forward? And that's where I just look at Abreu and I wonder, what if this had come up in 2018 or even 2017 after the Astros won the World Series or 2016 or prior to Dave Dombrowski getting fired in the 19th season? Jose Abreu would be a member of this organization because the pitch would be easy. The pitch would be an easy sell to a slugger looking to win a World Series. What's the argument for coming here over Houston right now? Obviously, Houston has a much better chance at winning a championship. And that's the one thing that really concerns me about this offseason with High and Bloom and Company. Because if you look at it, hopefully you can keep Bogarts. If not, you're going to try to get one of these shortstops. But what if you don't? What if you don't get one of those shortstops? Then you're in really major trouble going forward. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. The number is 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. We're going to be with you Thursday night late after the Patriots and the Bills. If you're driving around on Friday morning to work, that will be in your feed. So James White is going to be with us. We'll recap that Patriots-Bills game. Hopefully, it's a win for the Patriots. I'm not super optimistic, but hopefully it is a win. They need a signature win. All right, thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.